Bibles out. We are still in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. We are still in John chapter 3, verse 16 this week. And will likely be next week. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible uh, in front of you. You're welcome to take it home. Read it. Put it to good use. You're also welcome to use a Bible app on your phone or the Bible on the internet. As long as you promise not to do other stuff on the internet while I'm trying to talk to you. Good job, Chance. How are you feeling this morning? Are you feeling good? Great? Blah? Did you get enough sleep last night? Did a kid wake you up in the middle of the night? I froed up. (laughs) Did you get woken up early this morning? Did you get too much sleep? That's the thing. Sometimes you can wake up with six hours of sleep, feel, oh, refreshed. You wake up after nine hours, you feel just as dead as if you only got three. How frazzled are you from your work week? Are the kids making you crazy? Is the resurgence of the COVID media cycle beginning to get back under your skin, even this morning. On a scale of 1 to 10, how inclined are you to pay attention to this morning's sermon? Are you locked in, or are you kind of barely here? Have you put your phone away, or is it there in your hand just calling out to you, waiting for you to check your Facebook and Twitter and Instagram notifications. I see from the looks that some of you are giving others of you in the pews next to you that some of you were found guilty just now. If your boss emails you in the next 45 minutes, are you going to feel like you have to stop listening to me and answer him or her? Preaching is kind of a weird thing. You know, on the one hand, uh, everyone is here freely this morning. Nobody forced you to be here, even the kids. Most of the kids in our church are happy to be at church on a Sunday morning. And yet, as a pastor, I feel a kind of strange pressure to communicate to you in such a way as to draw you in and to try to get you to pay attention as we get started. And that's the reason why most sermons have sermon introductions. The sermon introduction is meant to draw you in wake you up, get your attention, pique your interest. And the best sermon introductions, they do that through various devices, you know, the provocative question that really gets you thinking. The inspirational story, you know, that just really makes you want to hear something good this morning. The humorous antidote, I don't have many of those, I have great jokes, but that's not appropriate right now. Or an intriguing drama. The sermon introduction is meant to lead the congregation into a state of attentive listening. And the best sermon introductions do that without you even noticing. The good preacher is not going to shove you through the gate into the pasture. He's going to lead you into the pasture without you even realizing that that's where you wanted to go. Rarely does one find a sermon introduction where the pastor just says, I really need you to pay attention this morning. So pay attention. Can you guys see where this is going? 
I really need you to pay attention to this morning's sermon. I don't have an inspirational story or a tale of intrigue or a humorous anecdote to get you to lock in, but you should lock in nonetheless, because what we're going to see in God's word this morning is glorious. The truths that we're going to consider together this morning are so glorious that I cannot do them justice. I I just can't. The truths that we're going to look at together this morning are so glorious that you probably won't be able to comprehend them sufficiently. You know, with your puny, sin-riddled, easily distracted, social media-loving, fickle heart. Just probably not going to be able to soak in all of what God has for you in his word this morning. This morning we're going to be talking about eternal life. I'm not equipped to preach it. You're not equipped to grasp it. But I'm going to try my hardest to put these glorious truths on full display for you. So I need you to try your hardest to focus with the help of the Spirit on what is forthcoming. Not for my sake, but for your sake, for the sake of your own soul. For the sake of your joy in Christ. For the sake of your perseverance in the faith. For the sake of your obedience. For the sake of your faith in the promises of the gospel. What we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the doctrine of eternal life is not some esoteric, abstract concept that only matters to some people some of the time. If you're a Christian, what we're going to talk about this morning is your eternal destiny. So let's talk about it. Let me pray and then we will read and then jump in. Father God, help us to have eyes that go beyond the tips of our noses. Help us to see beyond the here and the now. Help us to see in Jesus the rest of eternity. Amen. We're in John 3.16 again, so look there with me, and I'll read the verse, and you will follow along. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Okay, I've got four points for you this morning, note takers. Four points. What, where, how, and how long. What, where, how, And how long? Point number one, what? Let's let's start off with just a simple question. What is life? In in John 3.16, the promise of the gospel is that we will have eternal life. So if we want to cling to this promise, put our hope in this promise, if we want to stay focused on this promise as we strive towards heaven, we actually have to know what it is that God is promising us. What is life? Well, we can let Jesus answer that for us. Turn with me in your Bibles over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 3. 
You always have to appreciate it when Jesus just gives you a straight-up, easy definition. So let's let Jesus answer this question for us. What is life? He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God, and it is to know Christ. But that still might be a little up in the clouds for us. I mean, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know Christ? The biblical concept of knowing that Jesus espouses here, it, it doesn't really translate into English very well because when we use the word knowledge in the English language, that typically refers to information, awareness, intellectual assent. But in the ancient world, the concept of knowledge was much more intimate. The, my go-to illustration for this is, is how the Spanish language, I think, is better built to talk about different concepts of knowledge. In Spanish, you have the two verbs saber and conocer. Saber is to like know information about something. If I have ever you know, read a book, I would say that I know it, and I would use the verb saber. If I said I know about New York City, I would say saber. But the verb conocer is the same thing in English, to know, but it means I have an intimate knowledge of it. I haven't just read about New York City, I've actually been to New York City. He conocido a Nueva York. You guys get it. I think that that's really, really helpful. So, for example, in Genesis, when we read that Adam knew his wife, Eve, this is not in reference to him having knowledge about her attributes. This is in reference to their spiritual and physical union. It refers to the deepest possible sense of togetherness that two human beings can experience with one another. To be in union with one another. That's probably a better English word, to be in union. So when Jesus says that eternal life is to know God... He doesn't mean that eternal life is to have a conceptual understanding of God. Like you've, you've read the book and you, you, you know some stuff about him. Demons have that. Demons have a conceptual understanding of who God is. What Jesus means when he says to have eternal life is to know God is that to have an intimate relationship with God, to have union with God is to have eternal life. To have a kind of relationship with God that a man and a woman have when they come together in marriage. But it's infinitely deeper than that. Last week in our sermon on death, we saw that death is to be separated from God. This week, Jesus teaches us that spiritual life is to be united with God. So as you sit here this morning, can you say that you know God in this way? Can you say that you know God like a wife knows her husband or like a father knows his son? Sean, yes, I do think I can say that. I, I, I grew up in the church, you know? I went to summer camp every summer. My uncle was a deacon. I was at all the services. Wednesday, Sunday, Sunday school. 
Yeah, I know God. Well, maybe. Or maybe you just know a lot of things about God. Maybe you're just near God. But to be near God and to know God is not the same thing. To know things about God and to know God is not the same thing. Some of you here this morning may only know God like a history professor knows the history of the Habsburg Empire. Or like the famous biographer David McCullough knows about the life of John Adams through reading a lot about him. Maybe you know God like a third grader knows her times tables. But maybe you don't really know God with any kind of relational intimacy. Maybe you don't actually have union with your God. Perhaps you've always acquainted being in and around the church with knowing God. And you've never actually known him. Or maybe you've mistakenly, perhaps unconsciously, thought that being around other people who know God is the same thing as knowing God. Oh, my dear old grandma, she knows the Lord and she walks with him. And you thought, yeah, because I know my grandma and my grandma knows God, I'm good with God. This reminds me of people who know someone who knows a celebrity. In their mind, it's the same thing as actually knowing this. Well, my, my cousin went to school with John Voigt. Or maybe because this is a good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, evangelical, reformed church, maybe you've believed that to know theology is to know God. To read all the systematics and all the right books and to go to all the right conferences and read the right blogs, you thought that is the same thing as knowing God. The eternal life that the gospel promises us in John 3.16 is not an intellectual assent to God. It is a life that we have because we are connected to God in the most intimate way possible. And we're going to spend the rest of our sermon unpacking that, which leads me to point number two. Where? Where? We'll start this point off with another question. Where does spiritual life come from? The simple answer, the Sunday school answer, is from Jesus, right? I know this may seem like a silly question with an obvious answer. Where does life come from? But hang with me, okay? Let's go back to the beginning of John's gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 1. All the way back in the beginning. John chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, this is in reference to Jesus. John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that is in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see that Jesus is the giver of life. You remember that from one of our earliest sermons in John. He is the animating force of the universe from you know, quantum mechanics, the, the atoms and the quarks, you know, to the movements of the planetary bodies. Jesus is the giver and sustainer of life. In him we live, we move, we have our being. 
Jesus is the source of all physical life, and he is the source of all spiritual life. Later in John's gospel, Jesus is going to say this exact same thing. He's going to say this. I am the way, that is, to God. I am the truth, the truth of God. And I am the life, the life of God. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is, no one lives except through me. So, where does this spiritual life come from? Well, it comes from the same place that all other life comes from. It comes from Jesus. And that's it for point two. That was easy, right? We got through that. Point number three. This is going to be the longest point in the sermon. But I know you guys are locked in, so this is going to be great. Point number three. How? Last week, we said that the unregenerate man is dead in sin. Separated from God. This week, we are saying that to be alive is to be united to God, to be in relationship with Him, to have union with Him. But that has to lead us to another question. How do we go from being dead in sin and separated from God to being alive in Christ and in union with God? I mean, that's, that's bridging a gap. That's a massive, cavit, uh, uh, that's a, a massive gap to cover. Well, I've got two points, subpoints for you in point number three to answer that question, okay? Subpoint number one, God gives us life. God gives us life. Look back at this morning's verse with me for just a second. Go back to John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what is the difference between those who perish and those who live? It is what God does in the giving of his son. There's something about Christ and what he does for us that transfers us from the domain of darkness and death to the realm of life and light. Well, what is it that the Son does to accomplish that? Well, in order to answer that, you have to remember what we said last week causes death. We said that sin is what causes death. Because we are guilty of sin, we have to suffer the penalty of sin. Paul says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Because we sin, we must die. So whatever Jesus does to transfer us from death to life It has to be something involving the removal of sin from the spiritual equation. Do you guys see that? If sin is what causes us to die, then in order for us to live, Jesus has to do something about sin. He has to fix the sin problem. And that's exactly what he does. Let's see how, just by doing a little gospel refresh, let's just walk through the gospel and remind ourselves of how Jesus deals with our sin. So, The first thing to consider is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he came to us. He didn't deal with our sin problem at a distance. He came and he dwelt among us as a man. And as a man, he lived the perfectly righteous life that no one could ever live. You couldn't, I couldn't. No one could live the righteous life that Christ did, perfectly in obedience to the will of the Father. 
And then in love, Jesus laid down his life in our place. On the cross, he took our sin on himself. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Because the penalty of sin is death, and because that's a price that we could never pay, Jesus paid it in our place. So he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death and hell. And this is what we call the finished work of Christ on the cross. And when he finished his work, he made it possible for anyone to live again if they would repent of their sins and believe in him and what he has done. Now, I don't want you to miss that last sentence there because it, for you, practically, it may be the most important sentence. All that God has done for you in Christ so that you may live and not die is available to you if you repent of your sin and believe and trust in the provision that God has made for you and his son. The, the way that Jesus emphasizes this necessity of belief, it's, just, it's, it's all over John's gospel. Let me just read one or two passages for you. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or consider John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Or we can just go back to John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him doesn't have to die, but they can live. When we believe in Christ's finished work on the cross, God looks down on us from his heavenly courtroom from his heavenly bench. And when he looks at us, he no longer sees us. With all of our sin, with all of our problems, instead he sees the righteous record of his son's perfect life. When God looks down, if we are hidden in Christ, he, he can't see us. He doesn't see us. All he sees is Jesus. The Apostle Paul summarizes this pretty neatly in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen as he kind of walks through this theologically. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That word reconcile, it just means he brought us back into right relationship with him. We were separated from him. He brings us back into his life. How did he do that? Paul continues, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Right, do you see that? In the gospel, God doesn't say, oh, you've sinned and it doesn't matter. No, you have sinned and you are guilty of trespasses, but God doesn't count those trespasses against you. Well, how can he do that? How can a good and just God, how can a righteous judge not judge you for your sin? If somebody slaps my wife when I'm not around, <laughs> and then the cops come and arrest him, and he goes before the judge, and the judge goes, eh, I'm a good guy, I'm super nice, you're free to go. 
I'll say, judge, that's not very just of you. That's not very loving towards my wife. So how can God be a good and just God if he doesn't count our sins against us? He's declared the penalty of sin is death. So how can he be just if he doesn't give us death? Well, he says, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. That is how we can live even though we sin. Christ took our place as sinners so that we might take his place in righteousness. He took our penalty so that we might have his reward. He suffered death so that we might live. That is how we pass from death to life. Subpoint number two. God, the sustainer of life. What I want you to see here in this subpoint is, is, is the reality that Christ is not only the door to eternal life, but that he is also the sustainer of it. Christ doesn't justify us and make a way for us to come back into the presence of God and then just kind of leave us on our own. You know, I've given you life and now I hope you can keep it. That would be a pretty sad gospel. What Jesus does is he, he brings us through the door to eternal life and then he sustains us in it. He's not only the spark for the fire, but he's also the fuel and the oxygen. Listen to Paul in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, my own spiritual life, it was worthless. It was shot through, infested with the cancer of sin. There was no cure, so it had to be crucified with Christ on the cross. But now, how does, how does Paul live if his life has been crucified? If he's died, how can he live if he has no spiritual life within himself? What sustains his soul? And Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He is the thing that keeps me going. He is my life force. Uh, imagine with me for a moment that, uh, let's do a little thought experiment, you know. Uh, imagine that we are in some sort of dystopian future, like a, a Mad Max, Blade Runner-esque kind of world that you might find in like a, a comic book or a graphic novel. Now imagine that in this world, there is a human body uh, in a room that is essentially dead, just no life left in the body, left to itself, this body would just die of natural causes. It probably would have done that 30 or 40 years ago. But, because we're in the age of the future, this body is hooked up to all kinds of machines that keep it alive. There's a machine to keep the blood pumping. There's a machine to keep the lungs breathing. There's a machine to keep the GI system moving. There's a machine that keeps the neurons of the brain firing, and so on and so forth. The person there in this room hooked up to this machine is 
alive in one sense. But would you say that this person's life is their own? No. Well, in a much less grim and in an infinitely more glorious way, the same thing is true of all of us who are united to Christ. In and of ourselves, we have no life. We had to be crucified with Christ. What we need is a sustaining force of life outside of ourselves. You know, the gospel says that we don't have any righteousness of our own. It has to come from Christ outside of us. It's alien to us is what theologians say. It has to come from outside of us and it has to be imputed to us. Well, the same thing is true of our eternal life. We don't have any within ourselves. It has to exist outside of us in Christ and then it has to be given to us constantly, eternally. And it is only as long as we stay connected to Christ, the life source, that we can live. That's why Paul says, I don't live, but Jesus lives in me. Jesus says the same thing a little bit later in John chapter 15, he says this. He says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides, that is whoever lives in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Jesus says, listen, I am the life-giving vine, and as branches, the only way that anybody can ever produce any kind of spiritual fruit in their life is if they're connected to me. Or, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord... Sorry, let me start over. Because I feel like what I'm about to read is just going to kind of fall flat. And it shouldn't. This is amazing. What I'm about to read is amazing. I can't make you excited, but if you don't get excited, if this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what to do. I don't know what else I can do. I can't say anything more amazing than what I'm about to read in 1 Corinthians 6. So let me start again. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I can't even make sense of that. My spirit, which is dead, is fused with the spirit of God. So when we're saved... We are united to Christ not in some metaphorical way, not like, you know, we're one with Christ, like we have solidarity with him, like we do as like, you know, with other Americans or other Alabama fans. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the oneness that we have with Christ, our life, is oneness through our spirit being connected to his spirit. This is the nature of our spiritual union that Jesus is talking about when he says, Eternal life is to know God and to know his son. Eternal life is for your spirit to be connected to his spirit. Man. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says something like this. Jesus became a life-giving spirit. You know, during our Parenting Sunday School class, 
one theme that I, I kept thinking about, it just kept coming to mind over and over again, was the way in which parents give their life force to their children. You can see it most immediately with, you know, a pregnant mama, you know? The baby's literally connected to her, and she's literally infusing life into that baby all day, every day, for nine months. And she feels like she's giving her life force away. (laughs) She's got to eat more. She's got to sleep more. And then you can continue to see this life-giving as the beautiful amazing drama continues to unfold after birth and the mother continues to breastfeed. The baby has a measure of independent life, but it's still so dependent on the mother. And so the mother gives of herself. And you can even see that when mamas are are, um, ample after they give birth. And then as they breastfeed, they're giving all their calories away, you know, so they shrink, they're losing their life. And then you just can continue to see this unfold over the next 18 to 25 years, hopefully not longer than that, uh, as parents give their life to their children on a daily basis. They give their time, their talent, their treasure. They give their sleep. They give their health. They give all of themselves to their children. And in a very real way, you can see the effects of that sacrifice on them. You know, moms tell stories of You know, after three, four, eight kids, teeth getting loose, bones getting brittle, you know. Dads, you can just see it in their wrinkles and their gray hair and thinning hair and I'll stop there. The giving of life for human beings necessitates the losing of life. Because human beings are finite. We don't have a well of life within ourselves. We are not the eternal well. We have a finite amount of life after the fall. And as we give, we lose. Now for parents, it's a beautiful loss, but it is a loss nonetheless. That's not true of God. That's not true of our Heavenly Father. When our Heavenly Father gives His life to us, continuously sustaining us as we are connected to His Spirit, He suffers no loss whatsoever. None. Not an iota, not an ounce. His life is eternal. It's unending. It is self-perpetuating. I was watching a thing on uh, nuclear fusion this week, and they were like, this may be our hope. You know, this this self-perpetuating energy source. And there's a Christian uh, physicist from MIT, and he said, yeah, let me stop you right there. There is no such thing as that. There are better sources of energy that probably will do more good in the long run and require less of us, but there's no such thing as self-perpetuating energy unless you're God. He has life within himself. It wells up, overflows, is given to us, and it never runs out. It never runs dry. Friends, if you are a Christian, you will live forever because you are united to God who is eternal. Amazing. Point number four. How long? How long? When Jesus promises us eternal life, his emphasis is not so much on eternal, but on life. So go to John 3.16. John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We had a guest preacher not long ago who said, we, when we read this, we put the emphasis on eternal. But really, the emphasis should be on life. And I'll show you why. When Jesus says that God gave his son so that we might have eternal life, he does not primarily have in mind the length of our existence as sentient beings. The eternality part of this phrase is not part of the promise. Because the eternality of your existence is something that you will experience regardless of whether or not you are in Christ. That's what it means to be human. You're created and then you live forever because you're created in God's image. You can see this in Jesus' words in like Matthew 25 where he's talking about the judgment day. And he, he's talking about the two groups of human beings on that day, you know, the sheep and the goats. There's going to be a great separation, those who are in Christ and those who aren't. But listen to the specific language that he uses. He says, and these, that's those who don't know Christ, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, eternal, eternal, goat, sheep, righteous, unrighteous, both are going to live eternally. The difference is one will go away into eternal joy, and that is the nature of the promise in John 3.16. That is the emphasis. Our great hope is not our eternality. Eternality is built in. Our great hope is is life. Perhaps a better way for us to think about this concept is that of endurance. Enduring life. The life that we have in Jesus will endure. It can't be stopped. It can't be broken. There's no dropping out. There's no being kicked out. There's no breaking down. There's no drifting away. No powers above or below can steal us away and drag us back into the pit of death. It's really important that you understand that. And I think you can see that in the way that John, throughout the rest of the gospel, is going to emphasize this very point. The way Jesus goes out of his way to emphasize the persistence of our life as he makes us this promise over and over again. Just listen again to the very strong, very specific language that Jesus uses to talk about the permanent nature of our life in him. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So with Jesus, there's no such thing as you have my life today and then you will lose it tomorrow. You're alive today in me, and tomorrow you will perish in hell. That's, that's not a category that he has. The life that Jesus gives us as he unites us to himself is a life that cannot die. Think about life as we know it here on this side of the fall, in this world corrupted by sin. Every form of life that we know, whether it's genuine life or it seems to be alive, you know, artificial kind of thing, all of it dies. We are in a constant state of entropy, of aging, of deterioration. Jesus tells us the moths, they eat our clothes. The rust, 
it destroys our possessions. You know, the battery life on your phone slowly fades. Your phones and computers slow down. Your, your hard drive crashes eventually. Young people, your body might be squeaky and tight today. It will be loose and saggy tomorrow. Resources that are abundant today may be depleted within your lifetime. On this side of the fall, all of life dies except for the life of Christ. As I was preparing this sermon and then last sermon, last week's sermon on death, I've just found myself thinking a lot about my own death lately. You know, that's a good thing. Psalm 90, verse 12 says this. This is a prayer, a petition to God. Oh God, teach us to number our days, right? To sit there and think intentionally. All right, I'm 34 now. Average lifespan is, what, 78? I don't know. How long do I have left? Right. Teach us to number our days that, may, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So, I've been, I want wisdom. I'm preaching about death and life. Let me stop. Let me number my days. So, as I've been driving down the road and looking at my hand, I've been noticing that it's got wrinkles here that I've never seen before, you know? And as my loving family points out, the gray hairs are just increasing, just a new one every day on the side of my head. Instead of going, ugh, gray hair, I've been stopping and thinking about it. Okay, what is, why is this here? What is this telling me? I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about what it means for my impending death. I've been thinking about the great lengths that we go to in an effort to try to preserve our youth and hide the reality of our death from ourselves and from others. We don't want the world to see our decay. We don't want to see the decay. It scares us. I've been stopping to think about the fact that one day I will cease to exist in this body. And I've been thinking about how utterly unavoidable that is. You know, there's just, there's just something in us that leads us to think that, I don't know, maybe it won't happen to me. You know, I'm the exception to the rule. It's going to happen to everybody else, but not to me. That's foolish. That's the opposite of wisdom. I am going to die. But I've also been thinking about, so that you don't accuse me of being unnecessarily morose, the sweet promises of Jesus in the gospel. As I've been thinking about this sermon this week, and I've been thinking about John 3.16, every time I think about the gray hair or the wrinkle on my hand or the fact that I can't move as fast as the young guys in a workout, as I've been thinking about my death, I've also been thinking about my life. And I've been reminding myself, I've been preaching the gospel to myself that says that even though I die, I will live. Jesus promises that. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The life that I have in Jesus 
has no wrinkles. The life that I have in Christ won't turn gray. The life that I have in Christ will never slow down. It won't decay. It won't succumb to dis-ease. That is, of course, if I am in Christ. That is, if I believe. The verse that I just read to you, it's the second time I've read it in the sermon, uh, and both of the times that I read it, I didn't actually read the last four words of Jesus in that verse. So I'm going to go back and read it again, and then I'm going to include the last four words of Jesus. And I'm going to let Jesus have the last word for you as you consider this promise of John 3.16. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we want to believe your promises. Sometimes we find ourselves praying, we believe God, but help our unbelief. And that's good enough. We are saved by faith in you. And sometimes our faith is tiny, it's weak, it's fragile. It's blown about by the winds of this world. But Lord God, you know that as long as we believe in you, even with the weakest faith, that we will live. So Holy Spirit, help us to believe. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and the beauty of the promises of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.